I just want to do God's will. What you're seeking is a blessing from God. You must expect a miracle. You have the power of choice. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to Life Today Live. I'm Randy Robinson. You know, I grew up uh, on some acreage. I grew up with horses, uh, and we used to we used to do some crazy and often stupid things. You know, as kids, bareback riding and slapping horses around. I've been bucked off a horse more than once. I've also fallen off uh, because. Well, if you've ridden, you understand it can happen, right? Uh, you gotta, you got to stay in that saddle if you got one. Uh, but today's guest has some experiences in the saddle, uh, and she uses those to, to sort of teach us some bigger lessons. And I think there are a lot of great analogies out there when you start talking, uh, you know, nature and riding and, and these sorts of things. So this is, this is a fun one. I want to show you a book. It's called Pray, Trust, ride and it is by today's guest lisa boucher uh and she's got some some uh, little old west uh sort of lessons <laughs> at least i imagine it that way i we americans we fantasize you know about the old west yellowstone's one of the biggest shows right now and so we we all got kind of this this idea but it's a hard life it's rough and it kind of parallels life because life can buck you off if if you're not careful you got to learn to Got to learn to ride and stay in that saddle. Lisa, how are you doing? Great to have you on Life Today Live. I'm well, Randy. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, if we're going to talk about you as a cowgirl, you got to give us a little bit of background. What what makes you a cowgirl? All right. So, like yourself, I grew up with horses. My, I, my first riding experience, my mother used to give me $7 to ride my bike down to take piano lessons, and I would just keep on going most of the time. <laughs> and there was a dairy farm not too far from there that had also boarded horses. And so I fell in love with this little Shetland pony, Polly, and I would chase her around in the field and find a rock or a stump and just get on her back. And while she's grazing, I'm just sitting on this horse, <laughs> this pony, this little Shetland pony. Yeah. So that really started my love affair with horses. And then eventually when my parents, I guess, saw that it wasn't just a phase of I want a pony. Um, and after some experiences with other horses that weren't great, I ended up getting my own quarter horse and did the 4-H thing and and it was a wonderful time and I had one uh, an idyllic place to ride acres and acres that is all we were talking before the show build up now but it was a beautiful place to ride and so that started my love affair with it and then I ended up getting married and have always lived in the suburbs and I have twin boys and they were involved in sports and all that so it was just a lot easier to live close to their school, close to their sports. And, but the, the whole horse thing never went away, that love of riding. So, and once my sons were raised, I started to look into ranches out West in Wyoming and Montana. Mm. And so I started going on cattle drives and the first one, some of the stories, in fact, all of the stories in the book are true, like, things that happened on these cattle drives. The first one, I was totally unprepared for what I was actually getting into. Because <laughs> though I'd ridden my whole life, the terrain in Ohio is very, very different from the 
Bighorn Mountains in Wyoming. Sure. And so it was challenging to say the least. It was so much fun, but it was exhausting. I went out there to help, literally, it was not a dude ranch. It was a working cattle ranch and they there used to be a coalition of 25 ranchers and their numbers had dwindled down to nine. So they really did need people to come help them bring the cattle in. And so that was the week that I was out there and we were spending 12, 14 hours in the saddle some days. I mean, it was no joke. It, I went in June, it snowed one day. It was bitterly cold. It was the elements of, and then you've got the runoff from the mountains. So I was not prepared for the heights and I was not prepared for the raging rivers that we crossed and things like that. And it really was, I correlate that with, um, as you mentioned, staying in the saddle, we've got to ride it out sometimes through life. Yeah. My my instinct was, okay, I'm done with this, I don't, but I wasn't there as a guest and they're not gonna cater to, I'm cold, I'm done. No, my only choice was you're in it for the long haul and you're just gonna suck it up buttercup and you're gonna ride it out. <laughs> and that's what I did. And I think that's what we have to do sometimes in life is we've just gotta ride through those hard places. Yeah, I know we like to uh, sort of make make that sort of thing, you know, movie-esque uh, and, and it's, it's not, it's not easy. I mean, it's it's that's some of the hardest work I think someone could do. Do they still do that? Do you know? They do because with the ranches that I've been to now, that the guy at this first ranch, he he passed away, so that ranch closed. But I was at another ranch in Montana in August this past August. Oh wow! And they're still doing all their work on horseback. Some ranchers may use ATVs and whatnot, but the terrain really does pretty much dictate that you're going to use horses still because once you start getting high in higher elevations and whatnot so for example we rode for five hours just so they could mend some fences and we could check on a calf that had broken its leg to make sure that it was still nursing so horseback you know is essential for their way of life and i think the numbers have dwindled sadly but there is uh, you know, a lot of ranchers that are using horses and dogs. I We did see several that yeah. I know in Wyoming where one rancher, we were up on a high ridge looking down and it was incredible sight. He must have about like maybe a hundred head of cattle, which is not a huge herd. And he signaled that, you know, he didn't really need help, but he was working that herd with two dogs. That's wild. And it was incredible. So yeah, they still... That is the way of life in many areas. I think I know like the whole Yellowstone thing is really real because there's land grabs going on. The rancher was telling me some of the hipsters from the coast are moving in. They're not as respectful of that way of life and they don't want you riding on their land or this, that and the other. And it's causing a lot of problems, a lot of bitterness, actually. And Bozeman is the city I was outside of Bozeman and the ranchers do not like how it's growing so fast. They they hate it to be. Yeah, you know. I, I was in Clyde, Montana, which is still an itty bitty little town, but about an hour out of Bozeman. But they really do. They don't like the what some people call progress. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's a beauty to the just being out there and, and working. It is hard work. Now, for you personally, 
when did the rough the ride get rough? Well, I think the ride got really rough in my own life. I'm assuming yeah. you're asking was when I got sober back in 89. Hmm. So that started a journey. Um, I don't know that I guess I should take that back. It was a little rough the few years before that between 27 and 29, somewhere around there, my late 20s, when I realized my life was not going in the right direction. And I was spinning my wheels and a few examples when you're in and out of college for a decade and you still don't have a degree, there's something wrong. So it were it was these kind of things I had to look. I was already married and divorced by the time I'm 21. Mm. That um, I knew it was going to be a disaster, but I did it anyway because I felt I look back now and I felt I was rather trapped. I came from a, a, a home that was my mother was alcoholic. My father was a rageaholic. So there was a lot of that I was trying to escape, I think. Mm. Um, so it, it was rough. I think probably my roughest years were growing up and not for my horse. I think I would have ended up a teenage addict. Mm. But that horse really did save me and kept me going in a direction that wasn't too hateful. Um, so as I'm progressing through my 20s, the outside always looked okay. And I think we can fool ourselves. But internally, I was falling apart. My spirituality, I was bankrupt. Um, I was just really a lost soul. And so I, I think it's by the grace of God, quite honestly, because most people don't quit drinking in their late 20s like I did when I did, when nothing else really, I mean, like I said, if you looked at my, we tend to compare our lives from the outside in, and I was married at the time to a professional, we're still married, um, we didn't have our kids yet, so our life was, we were both working, I was working in advertising and marketing, and we come home and we go to dinner and we have drinks and we socialize. And so life looked pretty normal, like a lot of other people's lives at that age. But I just knew deep down by then my mother finally was getting the right help that she needed. And she was um, seven years sober and she started to whisper in my ear that, you know, your drinking seems to be looked like it's escalating. And I chose to listen to her, which to me, that is still a miracle because most people don't listen and they have to find out the hard way and drag themselves through years and decades of just misery. Yeah. And maybe because I saw what that looked like for my mother, that when I just knew that my drinking was escalating, I chose to nip it in the bud and I started going to 12-step meetings, and here I am 33 years later, still sober. So mm -hmm. something worked. But yeah. in that sobriety journey is when I reconnected with the spirituality. I was raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. And um, as much as I'm back in the Catholic Church and I do love it, there are things about it I wish they'd change a little <laughs> bit because they don't really help us get that personal relationship with God. Mm. And I had to find that on my own. I really didn't learn that through the church. Mm. Um, that was probably one of the most challenging journeys. And it still is because I think we all grapple with what is God's will for my life. Sure. And 
I don't always know what God's will is for me, but I know what it's not. It's not for me to go back living the way I was living back in my 20s. God, I know God doesn't want that for me. I know he wants me to be a sober example in my family. We still have a lot of active addiction with my siblings and um, hopefully not my kids. But, you know, I don't they have the genetic predisposition. Um, I did give them coping skills, which is something I didn't have. Mm -hmm. So I hope if they ever have an issue in their life that they don't turn to the easier solution of self-medicating and will just work through it. Yeah. So let, that, let me ask, what, do, you, do you think that sure. the addiction was the result uh, strictly of a genetic predisposition? Or you mentioned that you were, you, you know, were running from some things. Um, you know, was it, was it the, the root problem or was it uh, a symptom of a deeper problem? I think it's a symptom of something. I mean, it. I'm also a registered nurse. So working in the field, I started to do a lot of um, unofficial surveys of my own. And the people rolling through the doors of the emergency room, I worked in a level one trauma center for years wow. and, then, and then psych. So I've seen a lot. And when I read a lot of these charts, I started to put two and two together, childhood trauma. I had childhood trauma you know, with a mother that was literally non-functional for too many years. Um, she was so sick and tried to find help. They, my father took her all over to notable psychiatrists, therapists, hospitals, and they kept misdiagnosing her as uh, bipolar and all this other garbage when in actuality, she was an alcoholic and her addiction started with Valium. So that was, you know, Big Pharma's first billion dollar drug and they marketed it to women for anxiety, for depression, for having too many kids. My mom, there's four of us. And so that's what started her addiction. So I think my addiction and I look at my siblings, all of us have turned to substances. And I think it's because number one, we didn't, we were not taught coping skills. Mm -hmm. Number two, we grew up, I can think of my the predominant childhood emotion that I can recall from what I can recall in my childhood was fear. Mm -hmm. So I, I was in numerous car accidents with my mother. So it was fear of getting in the car, going anywhere because she was always drunk around the pills and we wrecked a lot. Um, my father raging, her falling on the floor, not being able to parent. Um, so we kind of raised ourselves and I think I mean, looking at that, we all turned out sure. pretty good because, you know, most of us are educated and we have jobs and we're functioning, but I'm the only one that got sober. Uh, oh, okay. So your siblings still struggle with it. Right. Yeah. I think they do. Um, your career path has been uh, unusual, just <laughs> to say the least. Uh, yes. You mentioned you're a registered nurse, but you've also trained horses. You've been a flight attendant. Uh, you've been a hairdresser and a bartender. Um, right. is that just, just the way it went? Cause I mean, I know plenty of people that have kind of hopped around from, you know, job to job or career to career, uh, or, or was that a part of a dissatisfaction or running or what, 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 what does that? Play I think in? you nailed it right there. It was the whole, that was all pre 
sobriety. Um, so I was just searching, searching, running, running. The flight attendant job was great because I didn't have a regular schedule. It was somewhat chaotic. And that was what I, I, I felt normal. That was my normal. And so I didn't really start drinking excessively or heading down that path until we moved back from Dallas. Um, and I tried to fly for a while. I was based in, in Denver for a while, but I, my commute was Dayton, Ohio, driving to the Cincinnati airport, getting on an airplane, just to get to work, Jeez. to go to Denver. So during ski season, it was a disaster. And uh, the, the way they'd cancel flights and weight and balance and, uh, you know, it was just way too hard. So I eventually resigned after a few months, I don't know, maybe three, four months of giving it a fair shot. It just was not working. I'd be sitting in the Denver airport and here comes a snowstorm. And now I'm not going to get home for another day, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So I think all of that. And then when I got sober, I very early, I was a couple of weeks sober, a couple of months sober. I'm sorry, when I found out I was pregnant with my twins. And so... I have these babies, I'm still sober, but in new sobriety, but the reality of, oh my God, I've been a college student for 10 years. I'm very well-rounded though, you know, yeah. but, um, that doesn't help put food on the table. I thought, you know, I'm married to an attorney, but who knows if this marriage is gonna last the way things are. So I thought I need to do something that I can put food on the table for my kids. And so, I hate to say it, but that is the only reason I went to nursing school. I didn't have this desire to save people, hmm. but I knew there was some flexibility there with a nursing um, career, a lot of different avenues I could have chosen, and I could work part-time. And so that, you know, it ended up being the best decision I could have ever made. And then through my nursing career, I didn't know I would use it so much in my writing my previous book raising the bottom was all about um women and alcoholism and men and i did a whole chapter to doctors nurses and healthcare because that's a whole different show i could go on and on about about what what a horror show it, it still is i mean what happened to my mother back in the 60s with the misdiagnosing and the medicating is still going on today it is so shameful it is a disaster yeah. and doctors they're not training them to with addiction they're still not it's mm. just really sad mm. yeah that that's a whole other topic right yeah uh, i'm curious though when when you say that you know you you sort of prioritized your spirituality came back to faith um uh, what what drove you that direction well, I understood I was not going to stay sober without something way bigger than me to help me. And I think that's why many people do struggle in addiction is they're not willing to let go. They're not willing to trust. I mean, they call it a higher power. I call it God, Jesus Christ. That is my higher power. But there are people that get sober, at least believing in some 
spirit that they can't define God, but um, they do grab on to some spiritual aspects. So there was really no choice. I knew that, and I, I started having very early in recovery, I had a beautiful dream of Jesus on the cross and the whole crucifixion and resurrection type thing. And I knew I was on the right path. Wow. That was so like powerful. And I've had many spiritual experiences that, um, you know, and, and my spiritual practice, we have a monastery about four hours from me where Thomas Merton, the famous monk was, it, it's the um, Trappist Monastery in Bard, Kentucky. And so mm -hmm. I go there by myself and do silent retreats and things like that. I worked very hard on my spirituality and sought out experiences to just be alone with me and God, because I knew that I need to not so much figure it out, but I need to align myself with God. And I think for all of us, it is a journey and it takes some work. And I think God does meet us, but I think we have to put in the footwork. For me, it's not been an instantaneous, oh, I feel so spiritual. It's not been like that at all. It's been a lot of work looking at my character defects, looking at, um, you know, when I was drinking, I mean, most addicts and alcoholics are incredibly selfish, self-centered. I had to be rid of that. And, and my ego had to be smashed yeah. that I had to quit being self-reliant. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's all scriptural, you know, denial of self, uh, laying down our pride. I'm curious, um, have you ever had a sense of God pursuing you? Um, I think I've had moments of it. Sometimes I, I feel like, you know, here's like an example. It was kind of woo woo, but you know, along this sobriety journey at some point, you know, it's easy to, I'm still, my husband drinks. I mean, I'm around alcohol. And after this many years, it's not hard to start minimizing how it was, because like I said, nothing, I, I never had a DUI, I never went to jail. There was nothing dramatic. So you can start playing in your mind. And I think that is the devil that, well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Maybe I could drink again. And this happened and, and weird things all of a sudden, a song I, I heard it, audibly heard it, and it was the, I forget the, the exact name of the song, but the, what I heard, the lyrics that I heard, the actual song playing, was the high cost of getting high. It's a country song. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very odd. I'm like, now where did that come from? So I look at my phone, like, okay, did I hit Spotify by nothing? So I've had moments like that where I feel mm. like God's directly here's what my thoughts and is going. And he was like, nope, you know, that kind of thing. I've had those experiences where um, I feel like God disciplines me. And, and sometimes I don't like it because I feel like other people get away with all kinds of things. He does not let me get away with anything. I mean, really nothing. I mean, that that's, that's a sign of, of love and, and not discipline in the punishing sense but in the keeping you in within the bounds of safety 
So. I think so. Oh, sometimes yeah. I don't like it. Though. Sometimes I want to come out. <laughs> we all do. Yeah. But he doesn't let me do that. So it's. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. Um, has there been a point where you moved from being Lisa Boucher, someone who is struggling to stay sober or successfully staying sober? I want to put that on you. But someone who is 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 trying to have a deeper faith and move it's this is really a question about identity to someone who realizes that I am a I'm a daughter of the king I am a daughter of the most high I am chosen by him I am loved by him I am forgiven for you know as far as east is from the west all the things the places where I've missed the mark you know what the original meaning of the word sin or I've I've just missed it I am I'm loved and accepted and nothing, there's no place I can go to escape his love for me. Has, have you, have you, has that realization really hit you? I think that realization has been creeping up on me the last two, three years. And I think that's why I'm shifting my message somewhat in that I've always felt like God has forgiven me because I really look back, like I said, I didn't have my kids, so I didn't hurt a lot of people with my drinking it was more i hurt myself um because i know a lot of people struggle with guilt with their kids and that and i didn't have that thank god Mm -hmm. um but i i am starting to realize that here's what god was putting on my heart that he wants to use everyday people like you and me to stand up for God. I feel like there has been so much God bashing in the world. Christianity is is going down. I, I'm sick of it. And I just feel this righteous, like God is putting in me, you need to start speaking up instead of, you know, for a while there, everything is you don't want to say anything is you don't want to offend anyone. And now I think God is saying, no, I need people to be bold and I need people to stop worrying about offending these people who are hating me and, and drowning out that I am love and mercy and want to save and help anybody. I mean, God can resurrect. And I have seen, I don't think we see miracles but boy, in recovery rooms, I see miracles sure. every day. Sure. I see people that are complete wrecks of a human being. And then, in fact, I had an, a, an experience just a, a last month. I was at a very 6 a.m. meeting that I don't normally go to, but one of my sponsees wanted her token. And there was a young man there, and he's all buff, and he's talking, and I'm thinking, boy, I know, I know him. He looks so familiar. And then when he said his name, I almost fell over. He was the same young man that a year and a half before I had been at a meeting and he looked like he just came off the streets. Mm. He had been on heroin. Mm. He had been on meth. He had nothing. He was homeless. And he's talking about he now has a home and he's got a new baby on the way Mm. and he's employed. And I could not believe Mm. it was the same person. That is a miracle that we don't get to see. Most people don't. Yeah, no, I, and and that's that's God's nature. He he makes order from the chaos. He breathes right. life life where there is death. Uh, and and yeah, you're right. We need to let people know that. Yeah, it, because really, I mean, unless we get off into the condemnation, which 
scripture says there's no condemnation in Christ. John three seventeen says Jesus came to the world not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. When we get into that message, it's a message of hope. And we all need hope. And and certainly that's what you sensed when you were searching is is the hope and, and you move towards that and it's led the fruit from that is good because it always is when God's involved. Uh, Lisa, I I appreciate your stance and and your journey sharing your journey because it is a journey you know and and it looks a little different for all of us but you're right god uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will if we will just as you say in the subtitle surrender surrender to him that is it all right last 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 word from you here's the book pray trust ride by lisa boucher if you're interested in and just some of the the things she's been through and the lessons she's learned and the romanticism of the old West is still out there. It's beautiful. I love it out there. I'll be out there soon. Um, But what do you want people to walk away with your bottom line message? What would it be? That letting go, it's all about the letting go. I think people struggle. They want to micromanage. They want to push the river and it just is causing so much angst and anxiety and I think if we really sit back and, and understand how little we do control, the things that really matter in life, we don't control the big things. So to let go and trust God more, really yeah. try to make that a daily practice of I'm going to let go of these things. And that doesn't mean we do nothing, right? but we, we cannot plan the outcome. We do the footwork and let God be in charge of the results. Yeah, and that's you know that's that's a great posture to be in, no matter where you are in your journey. That that surrender, it's a daily surrender. And Lisa, I appreciate you uh, doing that. I want you. Uh, I want to show you her website. It is lisabouchetauthor.com, uh, and it looks there it is like that. And you can read more about her and her other books, uh, and pick up Pray, Trust, Write. It's available wherever you get books. Appreciate you being with us. We'll see you again next time here on Life Today Live.